Wednesday, January 6th, 2021, 10 a.m. Alaska time. Good morning and welcome to the first oil and gas lease sale for the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I'm Kate McGregor, Deputy Secretary for the Department of the Interior, and it is my honor to preside over this momentous occasion. Since the early 1980s, pro-oil groups have been advocating for oil and gas drilling in the largest wildlife refuge in the United States. And that whole time, opponents to drilling have been pushing back. But on this day, January 6th, the pro-oil side achieved their goal. A lease sale was held. The rights to drill were sold. Coastal Plain Track 22, bitter name, Alaska Industrial Development and Export Authority, Amount bid, $1,404,200. Whether you're in favor of drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge or opposed to it, this was a big day, a historic day even. Amount bid, $1,407,000. But as it turned out, the news of the lease sale was completely overshadowed by a different set of events on the other side of the continent. A violent mob stormed the U.S. Capitol in an attempt to stop the certification of a free and fair election. Standing and blocking the door, and it's been a tense back and forth for at least half an hour. At this particular spot at the Capitol, I believe similar confrontations are unfolding elsewhere. Understandably, that's pretty much all anybody's been able to think about since. But although the nation's attention has not been focused on the lease sale, what happened that day in Alaska is extremely important, mostly because of what didn't happen. By almost any measure, the lease sale was a flop. No major oil companies participated. After decades of fighting for the right to drill in the refuge, the free market spoke on January 6th, and it more or less said, we'll pass. But not entirely. Leases were sold this day, and this controversy isn't over. So to bring you up to speed about the lease sale and to just zoom out for a minute and recap what this whole battle is about, we've decided to share a conversation I had with David Aronovich from the Times of London last week. After the lease sale, the Times got in touch to ask if I could share some of my reporting on their daily news analysis podcast, Stories of Our Times. And they've been kind enough to let us rebroadcast that episode here. This is the story of a finite presidency and a seemingly infinite space. It's like an ocean of grass and it's incredibly quiet and it feels safe and just feels like another world. On January the 6th, while supporters of the defeated president stormed the Capitol in Washington, 4,000 miles away in Alaska, an auction was held to sell the right to drill for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. Today we are following Congress's direction and fulfilling that commitment to the nation and to Alaskans to develop a responsible oil and gas leasing program. But to preserve the environment, such drilling had been banned for years. Then came Donald Trump. So what lies behind the decision to allow it and what effects might it have? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, Alaska and the legacy of Trump, drilling for oil in a wildlife refuge.
those are the sounds of Alaska's far northeastern region, home to the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, or ANWA, a federal protected area since 1960 and one of the United States' most remote regions. No roads run here, but the reindeer do, and the bears lumber all three types of North American bear, black, brown and polar. But underneath the caribou and the Arctic foxes lies a huge deposit of oil. By some estimates, up to 10 billion barrels, the extraction of which would mean jobs for the local population and money for the state of Alaska. But at what cost? Meet my guide to the far north. My name's Amy Martin, and I'm a reporter. And about five years ago, I founded a podcast and radio show called Threshold. And we take one complicated environmental issue and we look at it in depth. This most recent season, we explored the big uh, decades-long controversy over drilling for oil in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. Now, how did you come across the story that you covered in the series? I actually remember hearing about it at the end of, of high school, and I'm 48 years old, so <laughs> we've been fighting over this question of whether or not uh, we're going to drill for oil in the country's largest wildlife refuge since the 80s. And so even when I first heard about it, it was already kind of an old topic, and now here we are all these years later. What is the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge like? I mean, what were your first impressions when you visited the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is is enormous, first of all. So picture a, a piece of land about the size of Austria up in the far northern, kind of northeastern part of Alaska. So it's bordered by uh, Canada on the east. And you get there through a series of plane rides, and the planes get smaller and smaller as you go. So first you get to Anchorage and then over to a little village called Koktovik, which is the only village that's located inside the boundaries of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. But it's actually on a barrier island. And so then once you're on the island, then you have to walk around town and be nice to people and eventually find someone who puts you in their boat and take you across over to the refuge itself. So it's not a day trip, is it? <laughs> No, it's not. No, it's not. But it's a great trip, and I highly recommend it. When Amy first stepped off the boat onto the shore of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, she started to record. We're on a little spit of land, um, gravelly beach, and a uh, little blustery, windy, dewy, wet. And in front of us is the green tundra of the coastal plain. <laughs> it's gorgeous. The really nice person who let me go with him over in his boat, he, I feel like, described it so well in saying that... It's, it's, it's beautiful in its own way. It's not like a beautiful mountain. It's beautiful in a different way. You could say it's strikingly empty right now. It, it has this beautiful emptiness to it. The coastal plain is, I don't know, I mean, actually maybe the best analog in terms of the UK might be like the Moors, but then like times a million, you know, just going <laughs> on and on and on in every direction. In the distance, you can see the Brooks Mountain Range that kind of cuts horizontally across the northern tier of Alaska. And it was foggy. It was green and wet. The ground is very, very wet in the summer because it's, it's holding so much ice and snow and water. There's permafrost uh, melting beneath. So it's kind of got this squishy, gloppy kind of feel to it. 
I didn't happen to see any animals when I was there, but if I had been there in June, I would have seen tens of thousands of caribou. Caribou, or reindeer, are a species of deer that live in the world's most northern lands across North America, Europe and Siberia. The porcupine caribou herd, which is one of the, the healthiest caribou herds left on the planet, this is one of the main places where they come in the early summer and they nurse their calves. Some calves are born there, some calves are born on the journey there, and then eventually they migrate back over the Brooks Range. It's the longest land migration route of any animal on the planet is this herd. At other times you can see wolves, arctic foxes, wolverines, lynx, moose, every kind of bear. When we were actually on Koktovik in the village, we saw polar bears every day, multiple times a day. It's breathtaking. There's birds from all over the world that go there, but it also is a very quiet and serene kind of place. I think it, it goes through its seasons, and there's times that I think it's it's crowded with animals, and other times that it's like just kind of a lonely, windswept, wide-open piece of untouched nature. When it comes to human fauna, who lives there? <laughs> human fauna, I like that. Alaska Native people have lived in and around this area for a long, long, long time, long before it was Alaska, thousands of years. And right now there are two communities that are really affiliated with this area. There are the Nupiak people. Historically, people referred to them as Eskimos. That's not really a word they ever gave to themselves. Um, and they tend to live further north up along the coast, and they tend to be more oriented toward the sea. And then Gwich'in people are more inland, and they live just off the southern border of the refuge and on the eastern side. So uh, when the U.S.-Canada border was formed, it cut the Gwich'in Nation in half, and there are Gwich'in people on both sides of that border, and there are Nupiaq people on both sides of that border, I should say, too. So those people have always hunted on this land. They have had communities that traveled through it consistently. The Gwich'in would go up to the coast uh, when the caribou were there, and there's a lot of contact between these two groups, and they have a whole lot in common, but they do have distinct identities and languages and, and histories. Uh, how many of them are there? In Koktovik itself, it's just a village of less than 300 people, um, and it's one of the bigger villages in the area, if that tells you anything. And then Arctic Village is one of the Gwich'in villages on the southern side, and that's less than 200 people. These are small communities. And what kind of jobs do they do? I imagine they're not the same kinds of occupations as they were a 1,000 years ago. This is a really interesting thing about indigenous life in Alaska. What I heard from people is the whole idea of a cash economy where you go to a job and you get paid money and you need that money to buy things is a pretty new thing up there. But now people absolutely do need money. But there's a whole economy that is outside of the cash economy, which is a huge part of life, which is, you know, hunting and berry picking and preserving food and sharing food. And that economy of neighborliness and community is central to life there. And I think a lot of people focus on that. And then they do other jobs like work in the school or work in the store where you can go buy food that's brought in or maybe work in some kind of village services. In Koktovik, there's actually a pretty strong tourism economy because it's one of the polar bear capital viewing places of the world. And so, you know, people take tourists out to look at polar bears or they clean the hotel rooms where they're staying, own the hotels where they're staying. So it's a big patchwork of lots of different types of things. Good morning and welcome to the first oil and gas lease sale for the coastal plain of the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. On Wednesday the 6th of January, events in Washington, D.C. transfixed U.S. and international media. Meanwhile, 
almost a continent away, Alaska was holding the first lease sale on drilling rights in the wildlife refuge. Today we are following Congress's direction and fulfilling that commitment to the nation and to Alaskans to develop a responsible oil and gas leasing program, which could result in economic benefits to Alaskans and the nation, as well as contribute to increased domestic energy production and job creation. The sale was made possible by the Donald Trump-sponsored 2017 Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which includes a mandate for drilling in the wildlife refuge. The bottom line is this is the biggest tax cuts and reform in the history of our country. This is bigger than actually President Reagan's many years ago. I'm very honored by it. In addition, we have ANWR. We're opening up ANWR for drilling. They've tried to get that for 40 years. And the push to include drilling in the bill had come from Alaska itself. Senator Lisa Murkowski from Alaska actually spearheaded that effort and made it happen. For us in Alaska, we've had some pretty dark days recently. But with passage of this tax bill, with passage finally, almost 40 years later, to allow us to open up the 1002 area, this is a bright day for Alaska. This is a bright day for America. All right. The 1002 is the part of the refuge being opened up for drilling. And the idea was that this could go into the tax bill because since this is federally owned land, if that land is leased by oil companies for drilling, then theoretically the federal treasury makes money off of that. And so the idea was, okay, we're giving all these tax breaks over here, and then on this side we're going to get some more tax revenue by opening up this area for drilling. Three years on from the act being signed, the leases to drill were finally put up for sale. But it wasn't the brilliant success anticipated. No major oil companies showed up. Zero. There were just three companies that came, and only two of them were actually private companies, and they both made relatively small bids. The main company that, that bid was actually, in a way, not a company at all. It was an economic development uh, corporation that's owned by the state of Alaska. So the state of Alaska itself bid on the leases that are owned by the federal government. And the lease sale raised $14.4 million. And just to put that number in context, when the tax bill was passed, the Trump administration estimated that the lease sale might generate as much as $1.8 billion with a B. That estimate is over the course of 10 years, so it's possible there could be another lease sale. They could raise some more, but they would have to raise a lot more because the first lease sale here was, I mean, I think it's fair to say it had to have been a major disappointment to anyone who was hoping that this would generate a lot of revenue. So let me get this right, Amy. Back in 2017, they said this refuge where you've not been allowed to drill, well, look, if we do sell leases to drill, we'll get a huge amount of tax benefit to it, which we can spend on the American consumer, the American taxpayer and so on. But actually, what seems to have happened this week is it's clear that isn't going to happen. Well, it certainly hasn't happened yet. And I mean, I think the fact that no major oil companies even expressed any interest at all is a very telling that it's not likely to happen. This is an extremely expensive place to drill. There is no infrastructure. There are no roads. There is no access to a pipeline that has to be built. And it's extremely unpopular with the American people to drill there. So there's the public relations costs of doing this as well. There are four lawsuits in place aiming to stop this drilling. And so anybody who drills is probably going to get tied up in, in litigation. And 
more to the point, we're in the middle of an oil glut. I mean, we had oil prices go into negative territory for the first time ever in 2020. There is so much oil circulating around the world right now that producers actually are having a hard time offloading it. You can take all of concern about polar bears, climate change, any other sort of values questions out of it. And I mean, it seems like what the oil companies are saying is this does not make economic sense. And yet the state of Alaska is charging forward saying we got to do this. Okay, we'll come on to what some of the arguments might be locally in a moment. Can we first assess what we imagine the impact of large-scale drilling would be in the refuge if it did happen? I think one thing that needs to be said is that drilling in the refuge would not necessarily look like a Texas oil field with a drill rig every 10 feet and smoke billowing into the air. You know, what they say is that they would do directional drilling where you make one drill pad and then you can drill from there in many different directions. So it would be lower impact maybe than than like the worst images of drilling that people might have in their minds. On the other hand, just to do the seismic testing, which is what you need to do to figure out where the oil is, they're talking about a mobile camp of people that would have 180 people in it. They're talking about putting in a temporary airstrip. They're talking about huge machines moving in a grid-like pattern back and forth across this area for months. There's no way, even if they did it in the most sensitive and careful way possible, we're talking about a place right now that has almost no visible human impact. And so anything you do is going to look and feel dramatically different. Some of the people who live in Koktovik, that little village I was mentioning, are for drilling and some of them are not and that impact is what really people spoke about of like this is land that is precious to me i have always hunted there my grandparents and great-grandparents and all everything back have, have always hunted there and we go there for the quiet and the peace and for the contact with the animals and how is that going to be if there are planes flying overhead every you know every hour And now we're going back to the second half of this episode from Stories of Our Times, the daily news analysis podcast from the Times of London. The drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge wouldn't be the first oil mining in Alaska. The state has long been the site of exploitation of its rich natural resources. The story of Alaska really, since Europeans started coming initially to hunt whales off the coast of Alaska, has been wave after wave of people coming to try to get rich off of the resources in this vast territory. So that's been timber and gold and salmon and most recently oil. I mean, 80 to 90 percent of the state budget of Alaska has historically been funded by oil money. The Prudhoe Bay oil field was discovered in the 70s. It was one of the largest oil fields in the world that had been discovered at that time. And there was a pipeline that was built that's way up in the northern part of the state from the Prudhoe Bay oil field down to the southern port of Valdez. And oil started flowing. And Alaska really, that was what transformed Alaska from being very poor and very rough and tumble place <laughs> to pulling itself up into what many of us would probably call like more of a modern way of living, at least in, in the cities. So it's been transformative. Individual families and people have gotten incredibly wealthy from the oil. Companies have. It's provided tons and tons of jobs. And it's really been the backbone of the state budget. Does the state actually disperse money directly to Alaskans on the basis of the oil revenue? 
Yep, there's a thing called the, the annual dividend. So based on how much oil is generated, um, there's a you know a calculation of everybody gets X amount of dollars, maybe $1,000, $2,000, and it gets sent out to every citizen, and people are very, very attached to those dividend checks. That's an amazing thought that people are sitting at home wondering what the oil dividend they're going to get straight from the state for an industry <laughs> they don't work in will be that year. Yeah, exactly. And there's no um, income tax in Alaska. So people have gotten kind of used to this idea that the state pays me, I don't pay the state. Now, of course, there are downsides. And when you mentioned the pipeline that was going from the north down to the southern port of Valdez, I suddenly thought, Valdez, there's a name I know. It's already the largest oil spill in U.S. history. The tanker Exxon Valdez, gouged by a reef, more than eight and a half million gallons poured into Prince William Sound, a prime fishing and recreation area. A five-mile-long oil slick is moving out to sea. In March of 1989, an oil tanker that had just filled up from the pipeline was heading out to sea, and it ran aground, and it was the worst oil spill in U.S. history at that time, and it remained so up until the Deepwater Horizon disaster that was in 2010. The Exxon Valdez disaster was an absolute horror show for Prince William Sound. Anyone of a certain age can remember those images of birds and seals and other animals just covered in oil, gasping for breath, and people gathering, trying their best to clean up the beaches and the animals, and it was just an absolute heartbreaking disaster. I mean, I guess I should ask you this, but my perception was not only in the United States, but kind of around the world, it was a, a reckoning of like, whoa, this is what it looks like when it falls apart. Definitely, without any doubt. Um, how do people justify drilling for oil in a wildlife refuge? I guess that sounds like a bit of a naive question because the answer presumably is money. I think one thing I learned from reporting on this, though, is that sometimes that gets simplified down to something like, so all those people who want this are just evil, greedy people, you know, like Mr. Burns rubbing his hands together up in his office building or something. And I think it's really important to understand what that money really represents for some people, and also the way that the colonization history kind of is an overlay here. Because the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, when it was founded, there were these huge ideals of like, let's preserve an area large enough that it can be an entire ecosystem intact with all these different animals and plants interacting without humans getting in their way. And it was very appealing to people donning environmental consciousness in the 60s and 70s. But what got left out of that story is there are people who live there, Inupiaq people, Gwich'in people, they already live there, and they already are using that land, and they already have a sense of sovereignty over that land. We live our life on the land, and I grew up off the land. I learned more about respect and how each animal lives and how to respect them and all that. This is Sarah James, a Gwich'in leader from Arctic Village because what we know is hunting and fishing, and we had to be out there to do it. You know, I was grew up in a good way, and I know what's ours and what's not. And they were not consulted. They weren't consulted when the state of Alaska was formed. They weren't consulted when the pipeline was built. They weren't consulted when this refuge was built. And so even within the conservation movement, there has been an erasure of indigenous voices. And I think that is an important thing to keep in mind in this story, because for the Inupiaq people who live in the village of Koktovik, for the people who are trying to figure out ways to provide for education and health care and a better life for their children, just like everybody all over the world wants, 
their options are really limited. And so when someone comes along and says, you know what, there might be hundreds of millions of dollars worth of oil right outside your back door underneath land that has been yours and still they do still have some land claims in some of that area. I mean, I think you can really understand how some people would be like, you know what, we need that. And it's really not up for anybody else to tell us not to do it. One of those who has spoken to Congress in support of the drilling is Fenton Rexford, an Inupiaq man from Koktovik. We are not an exhibit in a museum. Nor should the land that we have survived and thrived for centuries be locked away for the peace of mind from those from faraway places. This school of thoughts amount to nothing more than green colonialism, a political occupation of our land in the name of environment, while others exploit the idea of wilderness for economic gain. On the flip side, though, the people who probably stand to make the most money off of this are not the people of Koktovik. It's the oil companies outside of it who are really going to profit, or at least that was the thinking until this lease sale happened and it looks like none of them are interested. So I think that there is some just straight up, this is how capitalism works. We dig in and we, we exploit every resource until it's tapped out. But I also think there's something deeper and more complex going on of like, you tell me how to provide for my community and my family then. If I can't do this on land that has always been mine, what am I supposed to do? That is a really interesting point, and I imagine that argument actually plays out between individuals in the community with people actually coming down in balance on one side or another. It felt like a blessing. I mean, the opportunities for our people uh, have been opened up, and if any development does occur in and around our area, we want to ensure that it is done right. It's not the land that I imagine this place to be. It's not, that's not how it is here. They already make enough money, they don't need to come here. Absolutely, and within families, and even people told me, you know, that within themselves, that they can feel that tug and pull in in different moments and different phases of their lives. In some ways, to me, what makes this story so fascinating is it really is the overall question that all of humanity is grappling with right now, condensed down into one specific place. Because all of us know that we have to get off oil in order to prevent the worst effects of, of climate change. We just, we have to, it's obvious. And yet all of us are using oil all the time, every day and other fossil fuels. And getting where we know we need to be from where we are is not easy. Amy, of course, there's the arguments that the people there have with each other about whether the whether the drilling should happen. But I imagine there are quite a lot of people who come in from outside, from the state or even further, who have very strong views and want to try and persuade them. In Alaska, there are many people who said, I can't tell you this on record, but here's what happened when I tried to speak up against oil drilling. And I'm, I'm talking about like people in villages, Alaska Native people, who felt like maybe their cousin works in the oil industry, maybe their their village is primarily funded by oil, and if you stand up and say, I don't want this, then you're essentially kind of taking jobs away from your own family, from your own community. So people were definitely talking about getting pressured to adopt one view or another. You spoke to these people, and you've talked about the circumstances as they are now. We're going to have a new president whatever Donald Trump thinks about it um, very <laughs> shortly. And in fact, by the time this goes out, may already be there. Uh, so what effect will the Biden presidency, do you think, have on the question of drilling in the refuge? I think it will be huge um, for a number of reasons. One is that this whole drilling program moves forward under the Department of the Interior. 
the Department of the Interior is now almost certainly going to be led, if she has to get confirmed, but by Deb Holland, who is an indigenous woman from New Mexico. She will be the first Native American to hold a cabinet position in the history of the United States. And she is very explicitly against drilling in the refuge. So just that alone is huge for this story. And then there are these four lawsuits that are underway to try to stop drilling. The defendant in all those lawsuits is the Department of the Interior. And so when the Department of the Interior switches from being led by the Trump administration to the Biden administration, I think it's going to be very interesting to see what they do. I mean, if they don't want to defend these cases, do they just say, OK, we surrender your right. <laughs> we need to start over on this. But there is a there is a hitch here, which is... In 2017, Congress did not just say, you are allowed to have a drilling program in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. They mandated it. They said, we must have a lease sale. And once somebody owns a lease, it's very hard to take it away. So I think most likely Congress will need to pass another law that says, okay, we're invalidating that part of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. And the fact that the Senate just went for Democrats, there is a chance that that kind of legislation could get through. But it's going to be a fight. Yeah, it's actually even more difficult than that, isn't it? And they're thinking about it because it's such a slender majority. You might want Senator Lisa Murkowski for something and she might want this as a trade. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you've located some of this in the question about whether or not we want oil drilled or used at all. And the administration, the new administration will move significantly against it. Would there be any way of compensating people in the area for the loss of future revenue from oil, given that there aren't that many people and that we feel quite strongly about the problems of climate change? It's the kind of question that really can only be entertained within a political system where we recognize that climate change is real and it's happening and that that, that oil is one of the causes of it. And the fact that we're moving into an administration that has that basic understanding of the facts of the matter opens up possibilities for all kinds of problem solving like that. You know, I actually heard some people in Koktovik saying similar things like, we're smart people. We've survived here for thousands of years. I do not believe that this is the only way that our community can survive and thrive. But it has to start with a willingness of that it's worth thinking about and asking that. It starts with basically surrendering, saying like, okay, maybe the oil's not going to happen. So what else can we do? And it's that first bit of like, maybe the oil's not going to happen that we're still stuck on here. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Threshold presenter and producer, Amy Martin. You can hear more of the Threshold series about the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge by searching Threshold Refuge wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also really like to thank Threshold for permission to use audio from the series in this podcast. The producer was Edward Drummond, the executive producer is Poppy Damon, and sound design was by Carla Patella. And if you have a story you think we should be covering, an idea for a future episode, or thoughts on what you've just heard, you can send us an email by writing to storiesofourtimes@thetimes.co.uk. See you again soon. Huge thanks to the Times of London for having me on their show. 
Special thanks today to Edward Drummond. Stay safe, everybody, and stay tuned. <laughs>